But I figured, okay, Trump's going to lose. I can help rebuild the party because I did the right thing and came out against him early. And then he won. And then the next, the minute you knew that was going to happen, it's like, my God, I'm in the ultimate political wilderness. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservice for the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled, moderate majority of Americans drawing upon history, biography, and current events. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Chris Vance, who's a former Republican politician, a public affairs consultant and media commentator, an adjunct professor at the Evans School of Public Policy at the University of Washington, and a senior fellow with the Niskanen Center. Chris was first elected to the Washington State House of Representatives in 1990, and from 1994 to 2001, he served on the King County Council. Uh, King County's seat is Seattle, and it's either the nation's 12th or 13th most populous county with a population of over 2 million people. In 2001, Chris was elected chairman of the Washington State Republican Party, and he served in that capacity until 2006. In 2016, he was the Washington State Republican Party's candidate for the U.S. Senate. He received 41% of the vote and outpolled the party's presidential nominee, Donald Trump, by over 100,000 votes. Chris became a political independent in the fall of 2017 and has written extensively on how Trump's domination of the GOP has left millions of former Republicans like himself politically homeless. He was recently one of the 150 initial signers of the Call for American Renewal, a political manifesto issued by a group of mainly Republican and former Republican officials and activists, including several former members of Congress. The manifesto came out on May 13th, one day after the ousting of Liz Cheney as the chair of the House Republican Conference. In a recent Seattle Times op-ed entitled, A New Movement to Restore or Replace the Republican Party, Chris outlined the core American principles to which the movement behind the call for American renewal is dedicated. These principally include truth, democracy, the Constitution, and the rule of law, as well as opposition to nativist, isolationist authoritarianism. Chris emphasized that politically, quote, we will work in partnership with others to elect candidates who share our goals, including moderate Democrats, courageous principled Republicans, or those running under a new party banner. As this movement takes shape, I will be working to explore the possibility of creating a Washington state chapter. So, Chris, thank you for waiting patiently through that long introduction, and welcome. It's great to be here. Chris, can you tell our listeners how you got interested and involved in politics? Oh, wow. That's like asking how I got interested and involved in breathing. Or, <laughs> I mean, um, I don't know, Jeff. I mean, I was uh, in high school. I, I, maybe before that, I was just always very interested in politics Maybe I was first drawn by the competition of it. I was an athlete when I was young, played all, all sorts of sports, and um, I just always was drawn to politics. And I went to college at Western Washington University, and it was the fall of 1980. And I was very enamored uh, with Ronald Reagan and what he was talking about and what he was trying to do, and got involved in college Republicans. And at some point uh, realized that there's actually, you can make a, a career of politics. I changed my major from journalism to political science and started volunteering for campaigns and um, worked on campaigns. And I got a, an internship at a member of Congress's office my last quarter in school, who then hired me to work on his campaign. And it just- That was uh, Rod Chandler? Rod Chandler, who was a, a, really an excellent member of Congress, spent 10 years on the House Ways and Means Committee one of the types that you don't see anymore. He wasn't, he, he didn't care about getting headlines. Rod just did the work. And then like so many other young staffers, 
I ran for office and got elected. And so there you go, moved on from there. But I, I don't know where and how it began, but I was always a interested in politics and always a conservative, what I thought was a conservative. Chris, uh, most of our listeners who follow West Coast politics will know that the Republican Party in states like Washington, Oregon, and California uh, has been reduced to an unpopular and powerless minority. And in most of these states, the party marginalized itself by going too far in the direction of right-wing Trumpiness. And in fact, the Oregon Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate in 2020, Joe Ray Perkins, was an active QAnon conspiracy theorist. Uh, but what people may not realize is that from the early 1960s and right through the 1990s, when you were serving in the state legislature, uh, the Republican Party in Washington state was both highly competitive with the Democrats and dominated by moderate Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Washington, California used to be the center of the universe for Republicans. Washington and Oregon were never that. Um, from the Depression on, Washington definitely heavily leaned Democratic. But we, we Republicans were a viable, competitive opposition party. We would sometimes elect governors and U.S. senators and, and win majorities in the House and Senate. I mean, we won the governor's race in 1964, 68, and 72, and 80. Um, but over time, what's happened is the two things have happened. The national message, and this is even before Trump, the national message became so toxic to Washington state, which is one of the most progressive states in the nation on social issues. I mean, we, we um, passed, we legalized abortion before Roe v. Wade. Uh, we legalized um, same-sex marriage before the Supreme Court. We legalized recreational marijuana use before virtually anybody else. So Washington was way out of step, even with George W. Bush's Republican Party. But we would run very moderate candidates from the King County suburbs, uh, people like Dan Evans and Slade Gorton, who won multiple elections here for Attorney General and U.S. Senator, um, Attorney General, Secretary of State, and they won. Then they started, then we continued to nominate moderates like that, like my friend Rob McKenna, former Attorney General, former Seattle Port Commissioner Bill Bryant, I guess myself, and we didn't win. And after a while, you didn't even come close because again, the national brand, even if you ran as a pro-environment, I do believe in climate change, tolerant on social issues, way to the left, if you had the word R after your name, you were doomed. Now, the second that factor is the party used to understand that we had to be different than the national message. To survive in Washington state, we had to be different. They have completely abandoned that. They are just a cheering section for Trump now. You go to the state party meeting and there's Trump signs everywhere. They care far more about proving their Trumpiness than they do about actually electing anybody in Washington state. So they just dig the hole deeper. The guy they just nominated for governor, Lauren Culp, was a Trump mini-me who, again, could, you know, he lost badly. But he goes oh, all fraud and I'm going to sue the state. And he still is not conceded. So it, they have um, they found themselves in a hole and they just keep digging it deeper and deeper. Because now, I mean, the base of the Republican Party cares far more about um cultural and social and religious issues that drive them than they do about actually winning elections or governing. Yeah, that's kind of a fascinating thing to me. Uh, I have a particular interest in Washington state 
it's Republican tradition. Uh, I went out to Seattle uh, 10, 12 years ago to talk to Slade Gorton and Dan Evans. Um, Slade has passed, but Dan Evans, God bless him, I think is still alive at age 95. And he is. Of course, he's the, he guy, for, he's the guy for whom your uh, public policy school at the University of Washington is named. Right. Um, and, you know, he went on to become a three-term governor of Washington in the 60s and 70s, and then a U.S. senator in the 80s, and Slade was U.S. senator in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, you know, what struck me is during the age of Washington State Republican Party's greatest success, it was all the things you said. These were people who supported the education, the environment, civil rights, regional transportation was one of their big issues. I mean, Evans almost single-handedly drove the John Birch Society, a uh, sort of anti-communist extremist organization, out of the Republican Party. Yes. Uh, he welcomed Vietnamese refugees to Washington State in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. And more yes. generally, he embraced independent thinking and cooperation with legislators of both parties. Um, he actually said the failure to pass a state income tax was the biggest disappointment of his career. And, and then he mentored a slightly younger group of, again, moderate Republicans like Sam Reed, Bruce Chapman, who was then a moderate Republican, Ralph Monroe, Chris Bailey, um, and then sort of the next generation of Jennifer Dunn and Rod Chandler, who I guess were your mentors as well. That's right. And, and the Republican Party used to really um, do ex especially well in uh, the suburbs, particularly like the east side suburbs, the King County suburbs to the east of Seattle. Uh, in fact, I looked this up. In 2000, which you know was only 20 years ago, Democrats only held one of those 12 legislative seats. Mm -hmm. uh, but by 2014, they had eight. Uh, and, and so I guess, you know, a question is, what happened in that relatively narrow area of the suburbs that Republicans used to own? Because, you know, of course, the big story in 2018 was Republicans' loss of these formerly Republican-supporting college-educated suburbs. But uh, the Washington state experience suggests this tendency has been going on for longer than, than that. Right. Well, you've just laid out my whole political history. Um, you know, your, your knowledge of our state is, is impressive. And I think it is interesting. You know, I mean, Dan Evans was a quintessential Rockefeller Republican, which I mean, a species that just doesn't exist anymore. In fact, frankly, you know, I'm a couple steps to the right of Dan. And so was Slade Gorton. He was very, very liberal for a Republican. But they, there was great electoral success, and it was based in the burgeoning post-World War II suburbs where Boeing employment just exploded. Then Microsoft came on the scene. And so you have a huge population of college-educated, relatively affluent suburbanites living in a state with a tremendous background in, in cultural tolerance. I mean, the, one of the things you must understand about Washington and Oregon is, and as a, as a practicing Catholic, I don't applaud this, but we have the lowest church-going attendance in the nation. Washington State is very secularized. So I, I used to talk all the time about moderate suburban secular voters who didn't want their taxes raised, you know, and they believed in the free enterprise system, and they, they believed in a, a strong national defense. But they were pro-choice and pro-environment and pro-education and, po and wanted public transportation and better parks. And the party used to understand that. And that the, the as the national message moved to the right, it became impossible for suburban Republicans to overcome that. My friend Steve Litzow is the best example I can ever think of. Steve Litzow 
was elected twice, I believe, to the state Senate from a district that includes the southern parts of Bellevue and Mercer Island. I mean, Mercer Island. The, 40, the 41st district. 41st district. Wow. Yes. And one of the richest areas in America. Take a look at where Mercer Island is. It sits in the middle of Lake Washington, you know, a five minute commute to downtown Seattle in the middle of a lake. And these are, these are, I mean, affluent, highly educated folks. And he was not just moderate on social issues. He was actively pro-choice, called Donald Trump a fascist. And, and he got crushed. He lost badly to a Democrat just if you because and I used to hear this all the time. You know, I'd, I'd talk to people and I would well, Chris, you sound great. How can you be a member of that party? End of story. So the party now locally has changed. They've completely lost their 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 direction. But my generation did not. We tried to continue to be Slade Gorton's Dan Evans, you know, protégés. But the national message just got so harsh that you couldn't overcome it. Yeah, you told me you were very interested uh, interested in and influenced by uh, an article by Yasha Monk a few years ago yes. called "The Rise of McPolitics." Yes, that is that he that was one of those things you read and it just the light just went on and you know exactly right. It used to be that a Republican in New York, you could have Jacob Javits from New York, who was far far away to the left from you know midwestern republicans and that sort of thing and there was there was different types of republicans and democrats regionally today just like a quarter pounder is the same in north carolina as it is in seattle a republican in alabama is the same as a republican in washington state and in the same and pretty much same is true for the democrats and as everything became nationalized uh it became impossible for those of us here in washington state to craft a separate identity and win. Now you could have others from the, you could you could have some of my friends who are still Republicans on this podcast and, and say and they would turn and tell you, oh Jeff, we're we're going to turn it around. We're going to turn it around. We're going to just nominate moderates and it's all going to be okay. The problem is I was trying to do that 25 years ago, and it, it had stopped working. They, they just. People have got to give it up. It is not coming back anytime in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I saw uh, that in January of this year, uh, the King County GOP chairman, Joshua Freed, told your moderate friends in the mainstream Republicans to either disband immediately or to remove the word Republican from their organization. Right. Doesn't sound like a a, a party that's coming around to moderation or even diversity anytime soon. Mainstream Republicans of Washington is an organization that's existed for a long, long time. I should actually, I should know how long, but I mean, far be, far longer than when I was active in politics. And it was the people you just mentioned, the Sam Reeds and the Ralph Monroe's and the Chris Bailey's formed a uh, an organization, a faction within the party to advocate for Dan Evans's beliefs. These are all Evans alumni. And they've, they've been around forever and ever and ever. They still meet, they still have a board, but I think they, they make the great mistake of they don't do anything to challenge the party. They don't do any. They just support candidates they like. They don't oppose Republicans who are going the opposite direction. And they, they just are, are too compliant, I think. And now what happens is if you are labeled as being mainstream, the base knows what that means here. If you ever went to a mainstream meeting or donated money to mainstream, they will use that in the primary against you. 
And in the old days, the moderates would win our primaries. Now we have always had wide open primaries. And we used to have what's called the blanket primary where everybody be on the same ballot. Anybody can vote for anybody. The Republican, the top Democrat move on. That made it hard for the, for the, the right to, to beat a slave Gordon. Now we have even more. We have the top two where it's everybody on the ballot. So you would think that moderates would win primaries. That was the idea. But in 2020, there, the, the mainstream, the old establishment, a lot of my friends are actually older than me, which means they're in their 70s, um, supported a candidate, Raul Garcia, a doctor from Eastern Washington who ran as a mainstream moderate, raised a bunch of money, and he got crushed. Um, Mike Vasca, who was the leader of mainstream, ran for attorney general and got crushed in the primary simply because the base sniffed out that they were mainstreamers. So now even in a state like a bright blue state like Washington, the base is is willing to to go down with the ship supporting hardcore right wing MAGA candidates. Yeah, this this kind of points out how much the Republican Party has changed since the days when Ronald Reagan was a leading figure, because of course, Ronald Reagan was the one who articulated the so-called 11th commandment, thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. But it seems like only the moderates are abiding by that. God knows the Trump's uh, supporters are not. Oh, no, they, they, that's right. And we used to actually have, when I was chairman of the state party, there was actually a written rule called the 11th commandment, that if a candidate violated that, we would deny them funding and support. And that's why that was a central tenet of, you know, trying to have unity. But well, and because back then we pretty much were all unified. There were always a few kooks over in the corner, you know, walk, listening to Pat Buchanan, but they did not run the party. The party was run by Reaganites, including Jennifer Dunn, who was state party chairman for 12 years and then a member of Congress for 10 years, a, a legend in the state and Slade Gorton and others. And we were all pretty unified. I mean, we were not as liberal as Dan Evans had been. We were Reaganites, but my God, anybody who actually is old enough to remember the truth about Ronald Reagan's record realizes how moderate he is compared to today's Republican party. And now they have much more uh, enthusiasm for attacking a rhino than they do for going after Democrats. So what made you want to throw your hat in the ring in 2015 for the 2016 election against the incumbent U.S. Senator Patty Murray of the Democrats? So the I, I left the state party chairmanship in 2006 because we had just gone through the most uh, divisive, lengthy governor's race literally in American history, Dino Rossi versus Christine Gregoire, that went through three counts and six months of litigation. And I was in the center of that whole thing. Uh, it was the only time in my adult life I understood the phrase, I need a drink. I mean, it was <laughs> grueling. And it was, this, being state party chairman was frankly wrecking me financially. It's, it's, it is a full-time job and it doesn't pay what I need to make. So I had to get out, I had to get out. I went into consulting, but I still wanted to, to run again someday perhaps for office a big turning point for me was when Congress was unable to reach a debt reduction agreement in the 2010, 2011, 2012 period, the whole fiscal cliff era, because I'm a politician and I could see 
they had set up a process to force themselves to reach an agreement, so they will. You know, just like in 1986, when Social Security was on the verge of going bankrupt, the Republicans and Democrats came together and fixed it. So I thought, okay, they're going to do this. And then they didn't. They literally, they, they appointed the Simpson-Bowles Commission, and they, and they went over the fiscal. And I said, oh, my God, something is really wrong here. And you can just see the gridlock intensifying in Congress and nothing getting done. And I got more active again in politics, became very active in an organization called Fix the Debt, which is the campaign arm of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, and started thinking about what to do. And so in 2015, I was, I was like, nobody else is going to run against Patty Murray. And after eight years of Obama, uh, and Obama's approval ratings then were terrible, Patty, Mur Patty Murray's approval ratings then were terrible. I thought this might be a big Republican year. We might have a chance to be be competitive and perhaps even win, especially because the Republicans are going to nominate Jeb Bush, who I've been told forever is just going to be a colossus, and we're all going to love it. So I got in the race, and everything was going fine. We I put together a good team, and we were raising money and being taken seriously, and then Trump happened. And we knew by, by May... I had seen poll. I was 20 points behind and nobody in Washington state was going to win. So I made a decision early on. I told our, our state party chair and others, I said, I cannot support this guy. And if he becomes the nominee, I'm going to have to say it. Because if you running for the United States Senate, that's the only question you're going to get asked everywhere you go by everybody. Do you support? I can't lie and you can't not answer it. People go, oh no, you can just fudge it. So the day after he won the Indiana primary, I had a press conference in downtown Seattle and the media was all over it. They loved it. There's a Republican going after Trump and people, oh, you're a hero. You're a hero. But my campaign just ended at that point. The, the small donor donations dried up. The major donors stopped holding events. Um, it got so bad. My son and I could not go to Republican events because we might get attacked, physically attacked. But I figured, OK, Trump's going to lose. And then there's, I can help rebuild the party because I did the right thing and came out against him early. And there's another Senate race in two years. We'll, we'll see what happens. And then he won. And then and the next, the minute you knew that was going to happen, it's like, my God, I'm in the ultimate political wilderness. And that's how I got there. Why was it that you had opposed Trump uh, relatively early on, like in the spring of 2016? <laughs> I mean, I could talk for two hours about this, but it's, it really comes down to two simple things. Number one, he clearly is a horrible human being who does not have the qualities necessary to hold any public office. He's not just stupid. He's evil and venal and corrupt and vicious. and He's just a terrible person. And second, on top of that, this is really the real reason, because if he, he could be terrible, I've known a lot of terrible people in public office, but... He, he is the antithesis of everything I believed in as a Republican. And his movement is the antithesis of everything I believed in as a Republican. And it is a mistake to think that Trumpism is a cult of personality with, that is devoid of issues and substance. That's not true. He's part of a bigger movement of neo-fascists that is isolationist, protectionist, nativist, bordering on racism. And I, he took the party in completely insane directions, in my opinion. Just one example of many. I'm an ardent free trader. 
I, I used to represent the state that had was the most trade-dependent state in the nation. Washington State economy is dependent on our ability to sell our wheat and our apples and our airplanes and our software to China and elsewhere. And Washington State politicians have always stood up for trade. And Republicans from World War II on were, were for free trade. When I saw Trump go in front of Congress and announce that he had just killed the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and was going to kill Na uh, NAFTA, and Republicans who had been fighting for trade six months earlier stood up and cheered, that's when I knew there was no hope that the party had completely sold its soul to, to somebody who's just the complete opposite of Ronald Reagan. I mean, on, on trade, on immigration, on budgets and spending, on foreign policy, NATO, I mean, he, Trump did, was, had nothing in common with the Reaganite party that I had belonged to. And I just, how can you, I don't understand how anybody can belong to a political party that you disagree with them on virtually every issue. Yeah, you know, you told me once uh, a while ago that in 2016, the party's elites and activists in Washington state really opposed Trump. It was just that the base was in favor of Trump. And so the story on some level was the elites and activists losing control of the party to the base. That is absolutely true. And I assume it's, I, I'm sure it's true everywhere. You would, I would be driving around the state. Uh, you know, when you run for a statewide office, you spend the week on the phone raising money. You spend Saturdays and Sundays driving around, and Washington's a big place, to Republican meetings, county conventions, Lincoln Day dinners. And you'd walk into these high school gymnasiums, and there'd be Rubio signs and Cruz signs and even Kasich signs. Nothing for Trump. No one there supporting Trump. Nobody. He had very few committed delegates at the Washington State Convention. But the base voters, the people that that vote but don't bother coming to the county convention, they were with him. From the, He is the candidate they have longed for for a long time. And that's it's exactly right, is those of us who had run the party for decades lost control of it completely. Um, and the base is now in charge. So clearly those... Um party elites and longtime activists went along with Trump. There were relatively few people like yourself who stood up and said no. Do you think they've become converts in the years since? I think some have become converts because they've convinced themselves, even though if you pin them down and ask about specifics about trade or NATO particularly or something, or the debt, they may not like it, but they've convinced themselves that Trump is bringing in new people to the party. This whole ridiculous myth about turning the party into a working class party is bringing in new people. So he's good for our party. So they've they have they've they've talked themselves into it. But most of them, I think, have either left, walked away. I mean, a ton of people who are very active in the party have just vanished. They just walked away. Or those who love holding positions so much that they're willing to just be silent and pretend they support Trump. I was standing with a member of the Republican National Committee at a Republican dinner, and this gentleman who I'd known forever said, I can't stand this guy. If he wins, I will have to leave the party. Well, he's still a Republican, and he's still a member of the Republican National Committee. Because, you know, the, the desire, it's fun. It, I've done it. It is fun to hold office. It is fun to have a title and a, and a, you know, and get to RNC meetings are 
are great. They're parties. You know, it's, it's <laughs> kind of lifestyle is, is hard to get rid of. And so, so, and also you've got a ton of people who make their living supporting the Republican party. My best friend, a guy who worked for me at the party, who's the best man at my wedding, he's still sort of a Republican because he makes his living doing campaign consulting for Republicans and he's got a mortgage to pay. So a lot of people are just just locked in. I understand it, but I don't know how they I don't know how they sleep at night. But you know, success for a political party professional used to depend very significantly upon winning. And, you know, there was a time not that long ago when the Republicans were within uh, two seats of a majority in the Washington House. And for the last two elections, the margin's been 57-41 Democrats, which is a pretty big margin. And, you know, one can't help but notice that Republicans in Washington state have not won a U.S. Senate election since 1994 or a gubernatorial election since 1980. Right. So why hasn't failure educated and changed the party? Oh, well, my entire career, whenever we have lost, the moderates would, I think, we would look at it reasonably and say, what, what, how do we fix this? Conservatives always came back with the same answer. We weren't conservative enough. We lost because you squishy mainstream Slade, Gorton, Jennifer Dunn Republicans don't give the base a good enough choice, a, a clear enough vision and we've got to move farther to the right. And what's terrifying now is they believe that view has been validated because Donald Trump won a presidential election and nearly won another one. And they believe that by just doubling and tripling down on getting angry, white, non-college educated voters who, and also evangelical Protestants that they can win. And you know what, Jeff, they're right nationally. They're right. They're, they, because of the Electoral College and the makeup of the U.S. Senate, that strategy makes sense for Republicans, but not on the West Coast, not in Washington state. So why don't they change? Because the base won't let them. The base Republican voters love Trump. They don't want to hear any criticism of Trump. And, and now you have an attitude with um, the Republican leadership in Washington state they know they can't win. They just want to hold on to what they got. You know, my friend, JT Wilcox, who's the Republican leader in the House, terrific guy, JT knows better, but he wants to remain the minority leader because he's got a cool office a few steps from the House floor, you know, and it's fun to be the minority leader. And so they, that's all they really care about is holding on to what they've got. Caleb Heimlich, the chair of the Washington State Republican Party, I've known Caleb forever. He gets it, but he needs the job. It's a full-time job and he's got kids to feed. You know, so that's, they don't really even care anymore about winning. They'll tell you they do, but they don't. There's that uh, classic quote, of course, uh, from Milton's Paradise Lost, better to ser uh, reign in hell than serve in heaven. Yeah, and there's- uh, Of course, it's Lucifer's motto, but yeah. There's a, there's a, a quote out here, not to offend my daughter who went to Washington State, but the University of Washington is the, the big, powerful flagship institution. Then Washington State, way over in Pullman, is the land-grant university. And uh, their football coach said, it's great being coach here. The small town, everybody loves you. It's like you're the king of Poop Island. <laughs> so uh, tell me, uh, you left the Republican Party in 2017. 
and became involved with the Centrist Project. How did that come about? Yeah, so uh, during 2017, a lot of people just walked away from politics. You know, make money, raise your kids, enjoy your life. I can't do that. I'm I'm crazy. I am just bitten by the bug. So I started looking for where is the resistance? Somewhere there is Yavin 4 where the where the resistance is gathering. Where is that? And I came across a Star Wars metaphor. Right. Oh, everybody knows that. Um, So I found that there was this thing called the Centrist Project, which was an effort to try and provide infrastructure and professional support to moderate centrist independents running for office. The idea being that you elect enough of them and they de facto become a new party. The ultimate goal was to create the American Centrist Party. Charles Whelan, who's a professor at Dartmouth, uh, was the intellectual brains behind this. And, and so I got involved in that. They changed their name to Unite America. I created a Washington State chapter for the 2018 cycle. And we did everything we set out to do. The Unite America, I remember being at a, a their big meeting in the summer of 2018. It was in Denver. There were hundreds and hundreds of people there and candidates and consultants. It felt just like being at a Republican National Committee meeting. We were we were doing, we had many candidates across the nation, everything from state legislature to US Senate, governor, all independents, and we, we got the millions of dollars in support and they all got creamed. And it there's some reasons for that, I believe, but what that led to then is Unite America took from that that instead they need to focus on electoral reforms like ranked choice voting and that sort of thing, which I'm all in favor of. But I think, you know, the future is decided by who elects candidates. And so I walked away from Unite America. I think the whole effort failed because we did not have an identity. There was, I kept urging them and also the, the SAM party, I've urged them to adopt a platform. Voters want to know where you stand. Our candidates would go out and say to voters, you know, both parties are terrible. The system is broken. Vote for me. And the voters would say, okay, that's great. Where do you stand on abortion? Are you going to take my gun away? Where, what do you think about climate change? Voters actually, <laughs> shocking, voters actually care about stuff that's going to affect their lives. They want to know, you know, what are you going to do to make my kid's school better? What are you going to do about the things I think are important. You know, I'm a gun owner and I think it's really important that I get to keep my guns. So the SAM party now and Unite America then were both deluding themselves by not taking stands on real actual issues. So I spent the 2018 cycle tilting at that windmill and it just didn't work. SAM is an acronym for the Serve America movement? Yes, and they are a party. They call themselves a party. But if you read what they say, if you look at their website, it's all about process. It's about how we're going to arrive at decisions, not taking a stand. They purposefully don't take stands on issues or have an ideology. In fact, they're they're hostile to ideology. And I think it's a pretty old old idea in politics that government can be like, I don't know, some, some process you learn in a business school. You know, if we all just have the right inputs, we'll all arrive at the right decision. Politics does not work like that. Politics is about values. Where you stand on abortion has nothing to do with facts or data or metrics. It has to do with what your heart tells you. And Sam, mind you, they have, they have no future because of that. 
A lot of people believe that electoral reform is the necessary prerequisite for the success of any kind of third party movement. Do you believe that or not? I don't. Um, it would be helpful. It would absolutely be helpful. And I hope it happens. Ranked choice voting, great. Top two primaries, anything, pretty much anything. And gerrymandering, I'm all for all of it. But the reason I don't think it's going to save us by itself is because I live in a state that has every reform you could ever think of other than ranked choice voting. Okay, there's no parties, no party registration, top two primary. There's an independent commission that does the redistricting. There's strict campaign finance rules. Washington State had all mail voting. Why no? Just everybody votes by mail, and still you get nothing but very liberal Democrats and very conservative Republicans. Politics is about ideas, not process. And that's why I, I believe we, we are going to have to have, at some point, a new political party that believes in the ideas that we all believe in, or that we, you and I and others believe in. You know, we heard a lot about uh, an opening for a third party when it looked like in 2020, the Republicans were going to renominate Donald Trump and the Democrats were going to nominate Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or someone else from the left wing of the Democratic Party. But instead, the Democrats nominated Joe Biden with a longtime reputation as a centrist. Um, and uh, Howard Schultz did not run as a uh, independent candidate because of that. And, you know, one hears a lot of argument now from even some, you know, former people in high standing in the conservative movement, such as Bill Kristol uh, and Tim Miller, that what the never Trumpers ought to do is just support the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Is that argument persuasive to you? Um, almost, but no, no. But that's that's a, a good point. When when Unite America collapsed, or I lost faith in Unite America, I became way more active than in the Never Trump movement. That's I think when you and I met, and I started to get really active in the, in all these different organizations that had been formed and were being were were just coming together. You know, for instance, there was a group of consultants who were out here in Seattle helping Howard Schultz. And I knew some of them, particularly Reed Galen, and I was going to be part of that effort. And then, of course, it didn't happen. Well, those consultants then said, we need something to do. And they started talking to me about some new thing called the Lincoln Project. And that's how Steve Schmidt and Reed Galen and the rest put together the Lincoln Project. I was one of the original senior advisors. Um, those guys really didn't need any advice. They know they're, um, but you started to see at the same time, Bill Crystal and Sarah Longwell created Republican voters against Trump. So the whole never Trump thing really began near the, at the end of 2019, early 2020, in terms of actually creating structures around it. And there was a meeting that Evan McMullen called in February of 2020 met in Washington, D.C., right before the pandemic shut everything down, where there's about 50 never-Trump leaders there, including Bill Kristol and Tim Miller and many others. I'm not, well, I think maybe you were there. And I was. At, you're right. And at that meeting, there was a consensus, I think, that we were not going to support Bernie Sanders. And in fact, if Bernie Sanders had become the nominee, I think Evan actually held a vote. And most of us said, we're going to form a new party. I'm absolutely convinced the people in that room would have taken the steps to create a new political party in 2020 if, if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee. But you're right, Trump became the nominee. Uh, I mean, sorry, but, um, Biden became the nominee. And so we all went out and worked for Joe Biden. And I donated more money to Joe Biden than I've ever donated to a candidate. And 
I made 21,000 texts for Joe Biden, and I served on one of the Biden policy committees. I had a Biden sign in my front yard, you know, and we all were, I voted a straight Democrat ticket uh, in the last election. And if my, if my choice continues to be forever, moderate, one nation centrist Democrats versus Trumpy Republicans, well, then I'll just keep working with the Democrats. But I don't believe that the, the system is that stable. I don't think they're, I mean, Biden was the most moderate person running. I don't expect the Democrats to stay where they are forever. My Democratic friends get mad at me about that. But I see what's happening here in Washington state where there are vicious primary elections where super progressive Democrats run against relatively moderate Democrat incumbents. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But bit by bit, the party is moving way to the left here in Washington state. And I think that just it has to be their inevitable path. And that's one reason why I think that we're going to need a third option and better to start now than, than wait. You had uh, an article in Medium, I think just last month, called uh, Why Asking Center-Right Former Republicans to Simply Join the Democrats is Not a Realistic Option. Right, and that's that's part of it, is the Democratic Party is not just going to stay exactly where they are. And there are there are certain Republicans or certain people who are just not going to put on that uniform. Everybody was kind of angry when they, they heard George W. Bush said he wrote in Condoleezza Rice's name for president. And they were they were like, well, why didn't you just vote for Biden? Well, I'm sorry. You're, I mean, you're you're not going to get some people to they, they might be willing to leave the Democratic Party, but they I mean, the Republican Party, but they just cannot make the, the full switch to being a Democrat. It's not going to happen. And so Liz Cheney, is, Liz Cheney is not going to become a Democrat. Liz Cheney is not going to become a Democrat. Um, Jamie Herrera Butler is not going to become a Democrat. Not going to happen. So that's why, again, I, I think that creating a new option for people is, is the right way to go. Uh, so the group that is behind the call for American renewal, of which you were a part, has not come out and said that it is going to form a third party. They are keeping their op- options open. And it seems to be that there are some people who signed that initial letter who want to reform the Republican Party and other people who believe it's a lost cause and want to form a third party. Is that correct uh, reading of the situation? Yes. And it's important to understand how we got here. Once the election was over, once the insurrection was put down and Joe Biden was in office, we, the Never Trump movement, started talking among ourselves, what do we do next? I guess we could have just all gone away. And I'm glad we didn't. That, And that was my main goal, was just to make sure this new community stay, uh, stayed together to do something. So Evan McMullen, who's always the convener, it seems, um, along with Miles Taylor, had a big Zoom call summit meeting for over 100 of us uh, in February discussing what to do. And it became apparent the group was pretty evenly split between those who want to create a new party, like me, like Chad Mays from California, like former Ambassador Jim Glassman and others, versus people who, I'm not sure they really want to reform the Republican Party. What they want to do is win Republican primaries. They believe that we can we can reelect Liz Cheney as a Republican and Jamie Hura Butler and Adam Kinzinger, and we can go beat Marjorie Taylor Greene in a primary. And they want to compete within the Republican Party, take it back the old-fashioned way. Frankly, a lot of the former members of Congress feel that way. Uh, Barbara Comstock, 
Charlie Dent. And I think we did a very masterful job of straddling this issue to keep the community together. We're going to do that. We're going to try and go reelect Liz Cheney, but we're also going to run candidates with a new party label in certain places. Um, so this movement is it's going to be a movement, not a party. But in, in my opinion, just my opinion, eventually it will evolve and mature into a new political party. That's what I think. That's, what, that's where I think we're ultimately headed. Do you think the prospects for such a party would be better in particular states than at the national level? Yes. Um, it, like in Washington state, all you would need to do is because is, you can literally put anything you want on the ballot. You can put, I mean, the, the, the state asks you, which party do you prefer? And I can say, you know, I prefer the Beagle Party, you know, because I have a Beagle. So all we would have to do in Washington State is form a political action committee and get a bunch of people to all run putting the same thing on the ballot. Boom, you have a party. It's harder in other places. But, Jeff, I just, I, everybody just assumes it can't be done because it's never been done. But that is not true. I mean, read some, read more American history. I mean, in the old days, not I mean, parties were constantly changing, breaking up, shifting. I think we are in a political crisis that is pretty analogous to America in the 1840s and 50s, where, I mean, their slavery created a crisis that the Whigs couldn't deal with, and the Whigs broke up. I think Trump and his neo-fascist new movement is not, maybe not as salient as, as slavery, but it is a... It is a huge issue in this country, and it's going to eventually reorder our political system. I don't, I don't, I don't see how it can fail to do that. And so I think we're going to end up with, I hope, I'd like to see the Trumpists be a tiny little minority over there at their own party, and eventually the Republican Party come back to being what it was. But the only way we're going to get there, I think, is by beating them over and over again. And, and having a new party would help a lot with that. Do you think um, that if uh, this third party has the effect that you're hoping for, that the result would be a Republican party that was no longer attached to Trumpism or that distanced itself from Trumpism? I mean, w what kind of optimistic scenarios can you paint me here? Well, I have to hope that there are enough Americans who believe in the things that you and I believe in, who want to adhere together into some sort of movement. And how this all works out, I don't know. I mean, if you look at, for instance, the battle for the soul of the Republican Party during Teddy Roosevelt's era, where he waged a battle with the, against the laissez-faire conservatives versus he and a bunch of others uh, as progressives, and eventually he created a new party that won electoral votes and elected a bunch of people to Congress and, and elected a bunch of people to the Washington State Legislature but slowly over time, the Harding, Coolidge, Hoover wing of the party overwhelmed the progressives and took the Republican Party back. Maybe there's going to be a, a war within the conservative movement that's going to require the creation of a new party. And maybe that new party, how far it goes, maybe it, maybe it overwhelms the, the Trump's supporters. Who ends up holding the name Republican? I don't know. But just like Teddy Roosevelt had a choice at the 1912 convention, he could just accept the fact that he had lost control 
of the Republican Party and walk away, or he could fight. And he chose to walk out of the convention and create a new party and fight. And that's, I think, the moment where we are now, is we have lost control of the Republican Party. Maybe, maybe someday we'll get it back. But for right now, we need to create a new identity so we can wage the fight. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Engineering, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. 